Thank you, Marty. Uh, if you could turn to Revelation 20, we're going to finish the chapter today. I promise you I did not plan this. Uh, a good chunk of this message is probably one of the most difficult messages you will hear. It's on the lake of fire on Valentine's Day. Wow. You better get it right, folks. If you're married, get it right. Or if you're in love, get it right or the lake of fire away. I mean, this is a very heavy message. Uh, but it's an important one. I want to do justice to the Word of God and our very much belief system is God says what He means and means what He says. And so we're going to study what He says and we're going to trust Him to teach us what He needs to know. Here's the key idea and the key thought for this morning. Everyone will choose either to repent and accept Jesus' payment for your sins or rebel and pay for your sins yourself. The reality is sin will be paid for. The question is, who's going to do the paying? Me? Or am I going to trust Jesus Christ? Now, let me give you the historical context. The tribulation is now over. Jesus has already returned to earth. We've been through that. The campaign of Armageddon has ended all human rebellion, so there's no human rebellers at this point. Jesus has set up his earthly kingdom. And his thousand-year reign on earth is now over. Last week we spent some time on the millennium, the messianic kingdom, that thousand-year period of time where Jesus was going to reign on earth. That period is over. And verse 7 of chapter 20 kicks us off into the next stage. So if you could go to chapter 20, verse 7. And when the thousand years are completed, this is the millennial thousand-year reign of Christ on earth. That is now over with. Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together for the war. The number of them is like the sand of the seashore. Here's the principle. Every human being that has not surrendered to Jesus Christ is still at war with God. There is no neutral. You can't declare neutrality. One of the most shocking things that you're going to find in this part of the chapter is human behavior on display. And it's not a pretty set of human behavior either. The thousand year prison, the thousand year reign of Christ is complete and Satan is freed from prison. And it says Satan will be released. It doesn't say Satan escapes, right? So how does Satan get out? By the will of God, he's released from prison. And your first question is, why would God release Satan after a thousand years of him being in chains and in prison in the abyss? I mean, the Messianic kingdom has been going along really, really well, right? Nicely. Satan's been bound for a thousand years. Christ is reigning from Jerusalem. Everything's going along well. Why in the world would you release Satan from prison to wreak havoc on planet Earth? Now, let me set the scene for you. At the, at the millennium, at the beginning of that thousand year reign, all human rebellion has been ended at the Battle of Armageddon, the campaign. There are no unbelievers left alive on planet Earth. The only people that get into the Messianic kingdom, that thousand-year reign of Christ on Earth, the only people that are alive that get into that are believers. They're followers of Jesus, they're obedient, and they start that kingdom. All the enemies have been killed. So at the beginning of that period, there's no unbeliever on planet Earth. The entire planet Earth at the beginning of the millennium is just like at the Garden of Eden. Everyone's a Christian. Just like after Noah's flood, the only eight people alive after Noah's flood were followers of God, right? Noah and Shem, Ham and Japheth and their, and their four spouses at that point. So Jesus is present on earth for the whole thousand years. Everybody starts out a Christian. It's a perfect environment. We talked about that a couple of weeks ago. The millennial environment is, the environment is literally perfect. It's productive, it's peaceful, there's universal peace. 
there's productivity, there's huge amounts of, of fundamentally good climate, there's probably very large families, lots of people on earth, but the children that are born to those believers are born in sin. Yes? Just like your children, even though you're a wonderful person. Right? Were your children born in sin? They sure were. And you look, how could that be? How could they come from me and be born in sin? Right? You ever looked in the mirror? Then you look and, and the people that live with you go, yeah, we can see. We can really see how that could happen. <laughs> You're supposed to laugh, right? So these children are born in sin, just like everybody since Adam and Eve. And these children need to be saved. They have a free choice just like we do. What's intriguing and disappointing is during this thousand years, Satan is bound, the kingdom is, is renewed, the universe has been Reset, the government is righteous, Jesus is ruling, the economy is perfect, there are no wars, it's utopia on earth. A significant percentage of people that are born during the millennium will rebel against Jesus Christ. Over that thousand year period, with an absolutely perfect sinless environment, a significant percentage of those children will grow up and rebel against the rule of God. Now you can't blame the devil because he's locked up, right? Can't blame poverty, there isn't any poverty. Can't blame a government that's perfect, Jesus Christ is ruling. It's not the environment that's the problem. What's the problem? Sin. It's the human heart. It's the human heart. Jeremiah 17, 9 says, the heart is desperately wicked, deceitfully wicked. Who can understand it? God the Lord understands the hearts. See, people hate God because they love their sin. John 3 tells us that. So you have a perfect environment. You have, you have forgiven people and they raise children and a significant percentage of those children are going to rebel against Jesus Christ even though he's the perfect ruler present on earth. Sounds like Adam and Eve, doesn't it? Was that a perfect environment, the Garden of Eden? Was it a perfect environment? Yeah. And we had perfect, you know, sinless people and yet they chose to rebel. Now God is sovereign even in our human rebellion. And I want to emphasize that because some of us have children and grandchildren and family and friends and those people, some of them are rebelling against the Lord. And some of us are wondering, some of you may be wondering, is God sovereign over my rebellious child, grandchild, niece, nephew? Yeah, he's sovereign over everything. He's sovereign over Satan. So God is releasing Satan on purpose, and he's going to do it to reveal the character of those who hate God. See, one of the things that our society believes falsely is that the external environment can change people. The external environment can change the human heart. A perfect world does not produce sinless people. Have you figured that out, right? Let me give you an example. You can bathe a pig. You can powder a pig. You can put lipstick on a pig. But the pig will still get filthy because they are a pig from the inside out, right? It's their pig nature, right? Say yes. yes. Let me know you're here, okay? Same with people. Sinners dress up like saints. Some wolves put on sheep clothing. Satan cross-dresses like an angel of light. That's who he is. He's deceptive. So Satan is going to provide leadership for all the people that during the millennium really want to rebel against Jesus Christ, but they can't. It's interesting they can't because Jesus Christ is ruling the world with a rod of iron. That's an external force. Now, when he takes that away, you're going to find out how much rebellion is in the human heart. During this thousand-year reign, no one can say the devil made me do it. Because the devil's in prison, right? 
You know, the devil never makes us do it. You know who does it? We do, right? We choose. The devil's job, his self-appointed job, is to provide us with lots of temptation. But it's our job to resist that temptation. It's interesting, it says, when the thousand years are completed, Satan will be released from prison. And what's the very first thing he does in verse 8? And will come out to deceive the nations. Surprise, surprise. Pigs get dirty and liars lie. And Satan is a liar. And he's going to lie. That's what he does. And he's going to deceive the nations, it says, which are in the four corners of the earth. Now, how many points on a compass? North, south, east, west. This is not saying the earth is square. This is saying the four points of the compass covers the entire planet. So the four points of the compass, it means he's deceived everybody. It's saying that Satan now has a worldwide following. When he gets released from prison, from the abyss, very, very quickly he's able to mount a worldwide rebellion against Jesus Christ's rule from Jerusalem which just takes your breath away. They've had Jesus Christ on the planet, ruling from Jerusalem for a thousand years in a perfect environment, and apparently there's millions and millions and millions and millions of them that want to overthrow Christ's rule. Are you surprised? You shouldn't be, right? Are we doing that today? Do people do that today? Routinely, routinely. It says the leaders of this revolt are named Gog and Magog. <clears throat> We've heard that before. Gog is the individual, the individual leader. Magog, of course, being the nation, the political unit. Just so you know who these people are. Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And Magog was the grandson of Noah. And they settled right near the Black Sea. If you know the, the Mediterranean region at all, you know east of that is the Black Sea, a little north of the Caspian at that point in time. And they were Scythians. Scythians are the progenitors of the Russians. So when you see Gog and Magog, many, many times they're talking about the people group that lives in that area around the Black Sea, which the Russians control a chunk of. Now, the truth of it is, even though these folks are the leaders, Satan is able to mount a worldwide rebellion. There are millions and millions of people who follow Satan into the war against God. It amazes me, if we read verse 9, Satan deceives the world. All of these millions of people are going to gather again for a battle against God in Jerusalem. Go to verse 9. It says, They, that's this force of human rebellers, came upon the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. And fire came down from heaven and devoured them. Now the beloved city is Jerusalem. So God's saints are in Jerusalem and they're being surrounded by Satan and his armies. <clears throat> Does this sound like the same song, second verse? Have we seen this before? Remember the campaign of Armageddon? We had the exact same thing. Satan led a revolt against God. All these multiplied millions of armies. Christ comes back from heaven, destroys them all. That was a thousand years ago. Now it's a thousand years later and they're doing the exact same thing. Do we learn anything from our history? George Santayana once made a very famous comedy. He says, those who fail to learn from history are doomed to repeat it. How many of you know people that keep making the same mistakes over and over and over and over? And you say, you've been taking another lap around Mount Sinai now. You know, you've been around this thing about 10 times. 
and there's body parts that you left last time you were here. There's blood where you left last time for the pain that you went through, and you're doing the same thing over and over and over, right? You know they haven't learned yet, and that's where you pray for them, that God will teach them before they leave any more scar tissue on the asphalt. So Jesus Christ at this point has done everything possible to love people to himself. Think about it. He came the first time, he died for their sins, they crucified him. He called out his church, he empowered his church to take the gospel of the good news. During the seven year tribulation period, he has been evangelizing the world like crazy through the 144,000, the two witnesses, um, uh, the angel flying in mid heaven. So there's a lot of evangelism going on during that tribulation period. God is judging the earth, telling people the planet is not going to last, come to faith in me. Battle of Armageddon comes, Christ comes back, sets up his kingdom on earth. There's a perfect 1,000 year reign face to face. Everybody on earth is going through health and wealth and peace and prosperity and purpose, and they still want to kill Jesus. What's being revealed is... Sure there is. Yeah, Satan is not responsible for your sin. Satan will encourage your sin, but Satan's bound, but human beings are still sinning during the millennium. Absolutely. Because the human heart is still the human heart, right? It's still a sinful human heart. These people need to be saved, and many of them won't. Well, at this point in time, God is done. And I wanted to make a joke and say they're well done because fire is coming down from heaven and consuming the whole thing because God says, I'm done with rebellion. We're not going to have any more of this. So if you look at the last half of here, it says fire came down from heaven and devoured them into the battle. Never again, by the way, this is a record of the very last rebellion in human history. There will never be another rebellion against God in heaven on earth. Now, human rebellion's over with, but we still have to deal with Satan, verse 10. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are also, and there will be tormented day and night forever. So Satan is the progenitor of the rebellion against God. He's thrown in the lake of fire, his final residences. It's interesting, I did a little study of the houses, the homes, the geographical locations that Satan has occupied during his career. Satan has actually lived in six different places. Six different places Satan has lived during his career. I'll just walk you through them. I thought it was an interesting study. If you're looking for that, Ezekiel 28 and Isaiah 14 are two very good cross-references. Satan's career began in the throne room of God. He was created as the anointed cherub that covered. He was the prime minister of heaven. He was the worship leader of heaven. He was the highest of all created beings, Ezekiel 28. Now, when God created, after God created the physical heavens and the earth, Satan lived in Eden, the garden of God, Ezekiel 28, 13. That was his second residence. After he rebelled against God and led a third of the angel in that rebellion, he lost his position as prime minister, he lost his position as worship leader, and he now, today, lives in the atmospheric heavens. Ephesians tells us he's the prince of the power of the what? Air, right? So he lives in the atmospheric heavens. He, however, has access to heaven. We know he has access to heaven. Remember Job? Remember Job? Satan was walking to and fro, went up to heaven, accused Job. Satan has access to heaven today, 
on a regular basis to accuse you and I. He also has access to earth because 2 Peter tells us he's roaring like a roaring lion walking about on the planet trying to tempt, trying to devour. So he has access to heaven. He has access to earth, but he lives in the air. That's his third residence. Revelation 12 says Michael throws Satan out of heaven. Revelation 12, we went through that. He no longer has access to heaven, right? He's now confined to the earth. During the millennium, I mean, during the, the tribulation period, Satan is confined to planet earth, cast down. Revelation 20, last week, we found out that he was thrown into the abyss, which is the prison house of demons, and he's kept there for how long? A thousand, thousand years. Now we find out in verse 10 that his final destination is the like of fire and brimstone. What would you say the direction of his career is? Down, Down right? He starts out as prime minister. That's not good enough because he wants to run the whole show. He wants to be like God, right? And he winds up in the lowest of the low. He will have the lowest spot in hell. And he started out with the highest spot in heaven. That's what pride will do to us. That's what pride will do to us. And we look and we go... I would never do that. You're putting a lot of faith in you when you say that because we get tempted with a whole lot less than that, don't we? Pride is lethal, absolutely lethal. It took the highest of all of God's creatures, made them the lowest of all of God's creatures. So let me shift gears now. This is going to be, put your seatbelts on because this is very sobering, but it's very important we understand this. If you want to know why we at Valley Baptist Church are passionate about evangelism, this is why, right here, verse 11. Immediately following Satan's incarceration in the lake of fire, John gets another vision, verse 11. And I saw a great white throne, and him who sat on it, from whose presence earth and heaven fled away, and no place was found for them. Now, if you've ever looked at any, I, I would say, renaissance or even medieval artwork, almost all of them have a scene of the last judgment, right? That's what this is. The great white throne judgment is the last judgment. It's man's last day in court. This is God's courtroom tribunal. I want you to think of a courtroom setting, and you can think of a, of a human courtroom setting just to kind of give you a, an, an idea. How many of you have ever served on jury trial? I mean, actually got into the courtroom, right? Okay, so you kind of know where the judge is. Yeah, Janet knows all that. She's been in, uh, Janet used to be a paralegal. So she knows that. But anyway, you have the judge, you have the jury, you have the bar, you have, you have the defense prosecuting attorneys, et cetera, all there. This tribunal is going to be very different than a human courtroom. John MacArthur gives us a description of this tribunal. In God's great right throne judgment, there will be no debate about guilt or innocence. There will be a prosecutor, but no defender. There will be an accuser, but no advocate. There will be an indictment, but there will be no case made for the defendant. There will be a judge, but no jury. There will be a sentence, but no appeal. There will be a punishment with no parole in a jail with no escape. That's a pretty sobering description of the last judgment. So this is the very last court that will ever convene for all eternity. God's court. 
Satan desperately wants you to believe that this date will never happen. If you want to get your unsaved family and friends upset, uptight, worried, talk about the last judgment. It's something that the human heart rebels against because we do not want to be accountable to God. Amen? Amen. And this is the ultimate accountability to God. Everybody's going to stand and give an account to God at that point in time. Satan wants you to believe that you can live any way you choose and there will be no eternal consequences. And that is the lie. What does Hebrews 9.27 say? It is appointed for men to die twice and after this comes a review board. Is that what it says? There is no reincarnation. That's reincarnation. If you're from Kentucky, reincarnation. Anyway, it's appointed for men to die once and after this comes judgment. There's no reincarnation. There's no multiple chances. You don't get a do-over. By the way, there's also no annihilationism. I, had, I talk with an increasing number of people who say, well, when I die, I just go into the ground. I'm just going to push up daisies. I'm just, my, my body will go to mineral. And I'm, then you look and say, well, your life then is absolutely worth nothing today. I mean, you're, you're an accident. You're a genetic, random accident. So what's all this moral stuff about saving the environment if you're just going to go push up daisies? I mean, what, what's the purpose? There is no purpose. There's no meaning in that. God says, the way you live today matters. Here's a, here's a very simple. You live, you die, you face God. Got it? You live, you die, you face God. Everybody gets the first two, but this world doesn't want to deal with the third one. But it's the most important one of all. John saw a great white throne. Great has to do with, this is almighty God's, infinite God's, throne of eternal judgment and finite man stands before infinite God and infinite God who is the creator of man is going to render a judgment on life. It's a white throne. It's blinding white. It means it's pure. God is holy. God is righteous. <clears throat> How many of you ever looked into uh, the summer sun on a cloudless day or tried it? It blinds you, doesn't it? That's what this is. When they say it's white, it's blinding white. You can't look at this. It, it will take your eyes away. And it says it's a throne. In scripture, a throne always represents authority. A throne always represents kingship, royalty, power, majesty. So we have this great white throne. It says, and him who sat on it. Who's sitting on the throne? God is the only one who sits on the throne. But I want to get even more specific. John 5.22 says that God the Father has given all judgment to Jesus the Son. Jesus the Son is the judge of the living and the dead. Why is that? Jesus is a God-man, the only God-man, who became flesh, born of the Virgin Mary, etc. Who's more qualified to judge the human condition than anyone? Someone who became a man. Jesus Christ understands us, yes? He became a man. He became flesh. He has our flesh. He knows what we struggle with because he struggled with everything that you struggle with on planet Earth. He struggled with himself. That's one of the reasons we can come to him when we're broken and when we have, you know, breakage in our life because he understands. He's, not a, he's a sympathetic high priest, Hebrew tells us. He knows when we break. He knows when we're tempted. He knows when we lose it. 
And there's great comfort in having Jesus Christ as judge for us who know him as Savior. It's terrifying for those who don't know him as Savior. So Jesus is sitting on the throne. He created us, he became one of us, and he is the judge. This next phrase is one of the ones that takes my breath away. It says, he saw a great white throne from whom, him who sat on it, from whom, whose presence, earth and heaven fled away. You know what he's talking about? He's talking about the dissolution of the created universe. He's talking about the universe literally fleeing away. It's almost as like the physical universe, which is contaminated with sin, runs away in terror from this great right throne that's coming. By the way, this place you're living on now was never designed to be permanent. This earth was designed to be very, very, very temporary, right? It's never designed to last forever. Matter, physical matter and energy are not eternal. The universe had a beginning in Genesis. It's got an ending in Revelation. And we're living in between that. This present sinful universe is going to be uncreated. It's going to go out of existence. God is going to terminate this, this universe with extreme prejudice. Was that a movie line, terminated with extreme prejudice? Rob, was that a movie line someplace? Somewhere. Somewhere. I think I've heard that. Because God hates evil. And this universe is shot through with evil. This universe is contaminated with sin. Roman tells us that the universe literally groans because of the sin. It's going to be destroyed. The consequences of sin, of course, is death and decay. And so we know that. Jesus said, Matthew 24, 35, Heaven and earth will pass away. It's not going to be permanent. 2 Peter 3.10 tells us how the universe is going to pass away. 2 Peter 3.10, but the day of the Lord, that's his day right now, will come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat and the earth and its work, works will be cooled off. Is that what it says? It says burned up, right? That the, when it uses the word elements, it says the elements are going to be burned up. The Greek there is stochion. S-T-O-I-C-H-E-I-O-N, stochion, and it means the basic elements. The atoms, the protons, the neutrons, the electrons, the subatomic particles. We're talking about particle physics. We're talking about the basic, minute building blocks of the universe. Those basic building blocks are going to melt. The Greek word there is luo, and it means to disintegrate. It means to disintegrate. Let me give you a word picture. How many of you remember the real basics of high school physics? You have a proton, right? Neutron and electron spinning around, correct? Now the proton and neutron are positively charged, right? Have you ever played with magnets? Remember in magnets, if they're like charges, they repel, right? Unlike charges attract, yes? Say yes, positive and negative. Here's what's interesting. The proton and neutron are both positively charged and they're the core of the atom. What keeps them together? The they're both positive charged. Yes? It's strong, strong nuclear force keeps those together. We can't figure it out, but Colossians tells us about that. That strong nuclear force is going to be released and those basic building blocks are going to come apart and we saw that happen when you explode a nuclear bomb. It's called nuclear fission. You literally split the subatomic particles, split the atom, and you get an intense vapor cloud of heat, which destroys everything in front of it. 
Peter says it's going to be totally burned up. Now, you say, well, how does that work? Colossians 1.16, for those of you that want to check this, Colossians 1.16 says, Jesus Christ created all things, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible. Colossians 1.17 says, in Jesus Christ, all things hold together, hold together. So those subatomic particles are being held together by Jesus Christ. And when he releases them, you have nuclear fission on a universal scale. What that means is that you have 100% of the universe's matter being converted into energy in one bang. If you want a little word picture of that, think of a supernova. What's a supernova? A star that explodes, right? You have an exploding star. Well, I want you to think about this. We have billions and billions and billions of galaxies, let alone billions, hundreds of billions of stars in the universe, and they are going to be converted from matter to energy all at once. All at once. It's going to make a supernova of a single star look like a single raindrop falling on the Pacific Ocean. It's going to be, the universe, the physical universe is now going to disappear, going to be converted to energy. John says, no place is found for them. What he's saying is the universe is not going to change locations. It's going to go out of existence, right? You know why this universe has to go out of existence? The whole thing is sinful. The entire physical universe is contaminated. It's toxic. Next week, we get into the good news. God is going to create a new heavens and a new earth that is completely uncontaminated. It's pure. This universe has to be destroyed because it's sin. It's contaminated with our sin. And God says, I can redeem you and I'm going to redeem you, but I'm going to make you over again new. The universe is going to be replaced. We're going to talk about that. Isaiah 51 tells us the universe is going to vanish like smoke. So it has a beginning and it has an end and John is looking at the end of it. So the material universe is gone and there's only two things in view. Only two things in view right now. Verse 11, I saw a great white throne and him who sat on it. The earth and heaven fled away, no place for them. And I saw what in verse 12? And I saw the dead. So we only have two things in view, God's great white throne and the dead. Verse 12. I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books according to their deeds. Here's the principle. Everyone will give an account of their lives to God. Here's the picture. Everyone who has ever physically been alive on earth is now physically dead. Got it? The material universe has been disintegrated. It's disappeared. There's no place for them. Everybody's dead. Followers of Jesus that have already died, been raptured or been martyred, are in heaven with Jesus. This great white throne judgment is not for Christians. You're out of here. You're already with Jesus. You've been raptured, martyred, or you died thousands of years ago and you're with Jesus in heaven. That's the first resurrection, the resurrection of the righteous. That's already taken place. We know that because Jesus promised us in John 3, 18, those who believe in me will not be judged. So as Christians, we're not here. This is not the great white throne judgment for the believer, but for the unbeliever. 
Romans 8.1 gives us one of the greatest promises in Scripture. It says, there is therefore now no judgment to those who are in Christ Jesus. So if you've trusted Jesus to forgive your sins, you're not in this judgment. The great white throne judgment is the second resurrection. It's the resurrection of the wicked. We know that these folks have rejected a saving relationship with Jesus Christ. See, when you're, when, if you, when you're saved, when you die, two things happen. Your body goes into the ground. Where does your soul go? To be with Jesus. It says to be absent from the body is to be home with the Lord. Immediately, you go be with Jesus at that point. If you're not saved when you die, you're not saved. Your soul goes to a place the Old Testament calls Sheol, and the New Testament calls Hades. Same place. It's a temporary place. It's a state of punishment where the wicked wait for their final judgment. If you want an interesting study, go to Luke 16, and you'll look at Lazarus and the rich man. Lazarus goes to a place called Abraham's bosom, and the wicked rich man goes to a place called Hades. He's in torment. It's a conscious existence. You can talk, but you're in great, great suffering at that point in time. It's a temporary place where the wicked are going. Now they're being called out of there to judgment. Verse 13 tells us that the sea gave up its dead, death gave up its dead, and Hades gave up its dead. Now we've talked about Hades being a temporary place where the wicked are remain until they're prison sentence. Let me give you a word picture. How many of you have ever been in jail? I don't mean inside. If you did, I wouldn't ask you to put your hand up. How many of you have been down to the courthouse and you've seen the jury rooms, etc., and you look over and you see the jail, right? How many of you have driven on the freeway system and ever looked at Folsom or any of those other penitentiaries? Yeah, you done that? Okay. Here's the picture. Hades is like jail where a criminal is being held before their trial. They're in the county jail. After they leave jail, they go to the courtroom, they get their trial, right? After the courtroom trial is over, they're sentenced to life in the penitentiary. Hades is jail, the great white throne is the court of God's judgment, and the lake of fire is the penitentiary where you get a life sentence. You get the picture? You know where I'm going with this? Okay. So God is now summoning the dead, wherever they are, for judgment. They could be in Hades, they could be in the sea. Of course, one of the reasons is, is the flood of Noah buried an awful lot, millions and millions of people that died by drowning. So it says, the great and the small, which means all unbelievers are now before God's throne. The somebodies, the nobodies, the rich, the poor, the powerful, the powerless, no one's absent, everyone's present, everyone's equal, God does not play favorites, the famous, the obscure, they all stand next to each other, and what they have in common is they are all accountable to the judge of all the earth. These are people, in verse 11, who have demanded to be independent from God. They have demanded to live independent from Him and have nothing to do with Him, and very soon they're going to get their wish. Now, verse 12 tells us how that occurs. Go to verse 12, if you'd be so kind. And I saw the dead, the great, the small, standing before the throne, and the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books according to their deeds. God keeps absolutely perfect, comprehensive records on everyone's life, including yours and mine. Since God knows everything, he has recorded permanently every thought, every word, every deed, every motive is all written down. Romans 2, Matthew 12, and Matthew 16. There are no secrets 
Nobody gets away with anything. God knows it all. Apparently, everyone else does too. It says here, God's going to open the books on these people's lives, not just in front of him, but in front of everybody else. So everything that all these people have ever done their whole life, ever thought, their motives, all the secrets are now transparent in front of everybody. God is a very transparent God. Apparently, the facts are going to be obvious for everyone to see. You're going to be judged according to your deeds if you don't know Jesus Christ. And the standard is God's standard. So, interesting question. How does God grade? Is he grade on a curve? Is he grade on a whim? If I bring him an apple, would I get a higher score? Right? God's standard is absolute perfection. Matthew 5, 48 says, You are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Galatians 3.10 says, Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all the things written in the book in order to perform them. So in God's kingdom, if you break one law, you have broken the whole law. See, because God doesn't grade on a curve. Only a score of 100% passes. You ever talk to anybody about that? You said, you know, the standard to get into God's kingdom, into heaven, on your own merits is you have to have 100% all the time. And you know what people say? Nobody's perfect precisely. That's why we need a savior who is perfect. God is so intolerant of sin because sin is so toxic. One sin will kill you eternally. See, we don't see that. We look and we go, well, I'm comfortable living with my sin. How come God just doesn't get over it? I mean, how come he can't tolerate my sin? I mean, I just a little few, right? I mean, right? I mean, I've never met anybody yet who said Hitler shouldn't be in hell. But somehow, you know, God's kind of great on a curve and Hitler needs to go there, but I don't need to go there. I'm always interested. I've had conversations with people and they say, you know, I think I'm good enough to get into heaven. And, and you say, well, what about your neighbor? Oh, God, are you kidding? There's no way they're going to heaven. I said, well, I think they think they're good enough too. If everybody gets into heaven the way they are now, without being redeemed, saved, or changed, is it going to be heaven? No, no it's going to be hell, because you've got a bunch of sinners up there that think they're righteous, and they get to live forever in that state. That's what hell is. That's not heaven. That's why Jesus Christ came to forgive us. Perfection's the standard, and thanks be to God, only one man met that standard, and is Jesus Christ. And if you've asked him to forgive your sins, he's paid the penalty for your law-breaking, he takes your sins and you get his righteousness. He takes your failing grade and he gives you his perfect score. Now, if you've rejected Jesus' payment for your sins, what you're saying is, I'm going to pay for my sins myself, my behavior, my good standards, and I'll pay for them for all eternity. Now, every person's life is unique and so is their punishment. In God's justice, the punishment always fits the crime. The degree of punishment in hell is determined by the degrees of sinfulness. And in a vernacular, I put down, hell does not have a uniform temperature. It's hotter in some parts than other parts. It's going to be more painful for some. If you want to know where I got this from, there's a number of places, but Luke 12, 47 is a really good place to begin. Jesus is telling about a slave that knew his master's will, 
and did not get ready or act in accordance with his master's will, he sinned against knowledge. It says he's going to receive many lashes, many stripes. But the servant who did not know his master's will and yet committed deeds worthy of a flogging will receive but a few. So it seems is the more you know, the more you're accountable for, correct? The greater your punishment if you sin against what you already know. Now, who knew the most? Satan. He was the cherub that covered. Do you think his punishment's going to be greater than anybody else's? Of course, he knew the most and therefore his accountability is the greater. What does scripture say? To whom much is given, much is required. Now you and I sit here, we know the will of God. You said under Pastor Roger and Pastor's Phil teaching, none of us here can claim ignorance. You will never get away in heaven and go, I didn't know. And they'll look at you, God will look at you, Jesus, because you're going to the Bama seat. You're not going here, the Bama seat. And you'll say, I was a member of Valley Baptist Church for 30 years. And they taught the truth. So you can't claim ignorance. We all know. Our problem is not knowledge, our problem is obedience, right? So what he's saying is if you've heard the gospel and reject Jesus, your judgment's greater than one that didn't hear. The more you know, the more you need to obey. That's why you, one of the reasons we come so we know what God expects so we can obey it then. John MacArthur says, and this is another statement that just I'm trying to wrap my mind around, all sinners in hell will be completely miserable, but not equally miserable. All sinners in hell will be completely miserable, but not equally miserable. So God is very transparent. He opens the books to demonstrate to everyone that his justice is perfectly just. And these books are their works, the book of their works. Now he opens another book called the book of life. And that book of life records their faith or their lack of faith. In the book of life, God has recorded every single person from, from the beginning of time who have trusted Jesus Christ for salvation. It's a book that lists those who have eternal life. John 5, verse 11 says, And the witness is this, that God has given us eternal life, and this life is in His Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. If you know Jesus Christ, you have eternal life, and you will not stand before the great white throne. Luke 10, 20 Jesus is talking to his disciples and they're very excited that they would be able to cast out demons and exert all the spiritual authority. And Jesus said, don't rejoice that the spirits are subject to you. Rejoice that your name is written in heaven. Name's written in heaven. So you want to know that your name is written in the book of life before the foundation of the world. Now we have that knowledge because we have the Holy Spirit, we have the word of God, and Jesus is our Savior. Verse 13 tells us there's no place to hide. If you're the sinful dead, you're going to want to hide. It says there's no place to hide. The sea gave up its dead. Death and Hades gave up its dead. And they were judged, every one of them, according to their deeds. So there's no way to evade this judgment as a non-Christian. You can't disappear into the sea. You can't hide out in a corner of Hades. Everyone's going to be judged according to their deeds. Now, here's your choice. You can either plead guilty while in this life. Repent of your sins, right? Receive God's mercy based on Jesus' payment for your sins, or you can plead innocent today. You can say, I'm not a sinner bad enough to go to hell. I'm going to trust in my own self-righteousness, and God will declare you guilty at the great white throne. Right? It's choice. 
Either you plead guilty today, repent and ask for mercy and you'll receive it through Jesus Christ or you're gonna declare your own innocence and God will judge you guilty at that point. Verse 14, it says, death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. Second death, see death and Hades are places for the dead in the present universe. The present universe is destroyed. So everything's swallowed up by the lake of fire. Verse 15 is the, probably one of the most sobering verses in all of scripture, if not the so, most sobering one in all of scripture. It says, if anyone's name was what? He was thrown into the lake of fire. Now, God is just. He's going to look at the deeds of these people who have rejected him as Savior. And he's going to open his Lamb's book of life. And he's going to say, I'm going to do a cross check. We're going to do a name search. A Google search, right? And we're going to find out if your name is in this book. That's the Lamb's book of life that says you've been bought and paid for by the blood of the Son. And you've accepted that at that point. And if your name is written there, you're in heaven. Nobody's name in front of the great white throne is written there. That's why they're in the great white throne. All the Christians are already in heaven. Here's the principle. God is not always the God of immediate justice, but he is the God of ultimate justice. See, one of the things that bothers us here is we really look at people and we really think they, they got away with it. How many of you know someone who says, you know, they did all this bad stuff and they got away with it? Just because they didn't get to trial on earth for their wickedness doesn't mean they got away with it. See, this courtroom of God's, everyone who has rejected Jesus Christ is going to show up for and there's an enormous amount of human verdicts in courtrooms that are going to be overturned because God can't be fooled. God knows everything. Now, he describes the lake of fire in some pretty sobering ways. When we look at the lake of fire, let me just give you a couple minutes before we close. Jesus talked about hell quite a lot. He described the lake of fire using the term Gehenna. Gehenna, G-E-H-E-N-N-A, is located southwest of Jerusalem in the valley of Ben-Himmon. In the Old Testament, this valley was a very wicked place because pagan nations, including Israel, actually sacrificed their, their infants. They burned their infants on the altar as sacrifices to the god Moloch. And God was furious with this. So Gehenna, in Jesus' day, was the garbage dump for the city of Jerusalem. The city of Jerusalem's up on the hill and they would literally take the garbage and dump it into the valley of Ben-Himmon, Gehenna. Trash was thrown there, garbage was thrown there, dead bodies of animals was thrown there. Uh, criminals, corpses were thrown there. Strangers who died were thrown there. The very poor were dumped there. And there were fires burning all the time in this valley of Gehenna because they were burning trash. And there was also maggots everywhere eating on the dead bodies in Gehenna. So Jesus used this as a word picture of hell. You had maggots, you had the smell of death, you had smoke all the time, you had fire that was always burning because they kept dumping trash and bodies out. There was a very dark, burning, foul uh, place. Jesus used that as a picture of hell all through the New Testament. Let me tell you what the lake of fire is like. 
I would prefer not to, but God said it and we need to honor his word and understand why we are so passionate about people getting saved because this is the alternative if they don't know Jesus. First of all, the lake of fire is called outer darkness, Matthew 8, 12. For those of you that want to check this, Matthew 8, 12. It's called the outer darkness. If you lived in Jerusalem in Jesus' day, when night fell, you could look out over this valley and all you would see was black smoke, smoldering fires, and nobody lived there. You never saw any candles or any homes because it was isolated, it was avoided, it stank, it was filled with death. Jude 13 says that people in hell are like wandering stars for whom the black darkness, <clears throat> black darkness has been reserved forever. Not just dark, but black dark. Dark dark, right? Uh, like outer space. This outer darkness that they talk about probably represents the absence of anything good, and it also means the absence of anybody else. One of the things that I, I literally have talked to people and they said, well, hell's not so bad, all my friends will be there. Hell is isolation. You, you're in hell by yourself. The notions you're going to have human fellowship in hell, there's no human fellowship in hell. Everybody is alone, isolated, outer darkness, solitary confinement, painful solitary confinement. So number one, it's outer darkness. Number two, the Bible talks about the worm. Mark 9, 24 says, in hell, in the lake of fire, the worm will never die. It means that the fires will burn forever and the maggots will eat forever. Some commentators believe that the worm in hell represents a conscience, a relentless, gnawing, accusing conscience that never goes to sleep. One of the greatest pains of hell may be a gnawing conscience that will never leave you alone. You know one of the things that will happen in hell? No one will be in denial. No one will be in denial in hell. Everyone's conscience will work perfectly well and will continually accuse themselves of the sin that they committed. Ongoing, never let up. Their guilt, ongoing. They're no denial. They will not be able to pretend that it didn't occur. They're going to have to face their sin, experience their guilt, live with a remorse, undiluted forever. Thirdly, outer darkness, worm that does not turn. He talks about the fires of hell. John the Baptist said that God's going to burn up the chaff, unsaved people with unquenchable fire. So it's a fire that burns forever. It's a fire that never burns anything up. It just keeps burning. You know, it's interesting when we talk about going to heaven, right? We say you get to live forever, right? You live forever. So in hell, what do you do? You die forever. But you never end, right? It's just a continual state of dying. As heaven is a continual state of living, right? I want you to be somewhat horrified when I'm going through this. This should nauseate you. You should be getting sick to your stomach over this, and you should be thinking about people that you love that are going to go there. That's why we're so passionate about the gospel. You don't dilute this stuff. You say, this is the outcome. God wrote it down. He made it very clear. He says, don't go here. I didn't make hell for you. I prepared it for the devil. Okay? Fourth, the lake of fire is associated with banishment. Matthew 8, 12 says, 
that you're going to be cast out. It's literally the concept of being forcibly exiled from your home country, exiled from your family, exiled from your home city. You're completely separated from everything you know, and you are what? You are thrown into the lake of fire. No one is placed in the lake of fire. They get thrown there. Now, what do we say today? Throw out the trash. Throw out the garbage. You know what the lake of fire is? It's God's cosmic garbage dump. Everyone that hates him, everyone that refuses relationship with him, everyone that insists on not having a relationship with him, God's going to give them their way. Lastly, lake of fire is often associated with weeping, wailing, and gnashing of teeth. It typically indicates sorrow. Luke 13, 27 God says he's going to command evildoers to depart from him where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Gnashing of teeth, interestingly enough, in the scriptures, often associated with anger. People are so angry. Remember when Stephen was preaching in Acts 7 and the Pharisees got so angry, it says they gnashed their teeth at him and then he took him out and stoned him to death. So it has to do with anger. People in hell are very angry people. They're angry at God. They're always angry at God. Satan will be as well. So it's not just pain, it's also painful anger. Here's the bottom line. The great white throne and the lake of fire are avoidable. Jesus has already experienced God's judgment on the cross. Jesus Christ has already experienced the wrath of God against sin. So humans don't have to. You don't have to. This is very avoidable. People in hell chose to be in hell. They hate God and they refuse to live with him. Well, I'm going to close with one comment by C.S. Lewis. Rob, do you have this on screen? It is profound and it's terrifying. There are only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, thy will be done. And those to whom God says in the end, thy will be done. Everyone who is in hell chooses to be in hell. They do not want to live with God. They want nothing to do with Him. They reject His love. And God is a gentleman. He's not going to force Himself on anyone. If people want to spend eternity without Him, He will say to them, Thy will be done. Now I bring this to you very sobering. This is a very tough message, especially on Valentine's Day. But I want you to understand why the gospel of Jesus Christ is absolutely essential. And why we need to be passionate about bringing the gospel of Jesus to lost people because it's not a, oh, well, we'll see what's going to happen. We know the outcome. Jesus Christ died, shed his blood, so people wouldn't have to experience this. Amen? Okay. I love you guys. You know scripture speaks truth with love, and that's what we want to do. Now that you know, do. The next two or three weeks, we finally get to the really good stuff. We're going to talk about the new heavens and the new earth the next couple, three weeks. And we are going to see everything that God has in store for us. And it is absolutely off the charts amazing what God has in store for us. So be back.